Heavenly Father, we come and we ask that by your Spirit you would open your word to us today. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It is a a joy to be here with you. My wife Sally sends her love. She was not able to uh, come on this trip with me. We are going to be really landing in the gospel reading, Luke chapter 24. And um, this is the evening of the resurrection, and we have Jesus uh, suddenly appearing in the midst of the disciples. The, the sense is he just pops in. He just shows up. He wasn't there, and, and then he is there. And, and that sudden appearance, the disciples, well, it freaks them out, right? So here's what it says. Now, when they see him, they say they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Which makes sense, right? They saw him crucified, and now here he is in their midst. They think he sees a ghost. So, so what Jesus does is he shows them his hands and his feet to show them. He says, see, look and touch uh, that I am real. And it says then that, that they still did not believe uh, because of joy and amazement, which really is like, this is too good to be true. I mean, this, can't, this is too good to be true. And so what does Jesus do to, to try to convince them even more? He says, do you have something to eat? And he takes a fish and he eats it. Why? Because ghosts can't eat. Right? He's really just trying to show them that, that he is really alive physically. There's been a resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, it's a victory over the devil, a victory over sin, a victory over death. But it's not just a, a spiritual victory. It is also a physical victory. And it is that victory that leads to the renewal of all things at the end of times, the new heavens and the new earth, which means that God does not abandon His creation. And that is good news for us. He does not abandon His creation. The resurrection is, you could say, once a celebration of the physical, because it is a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, which means that you could say that Christianity is the most physical religion that there is. Jesus in his resurrected body is not less physical than he was. He is now more physical. He is, he is more real, which also helps us because we too will be raised. And so we understand that life after death is not that we are sort of in this spiritual disembodied state, floating around on the clouds with a harp. That, that's, that's not the picture. That there is a physical resurrection. That we are physically raised. And in that, we have these perfected bodies. I, I just want you to know, I have a few hopes for that myself. <laughs> I'm expecting that I'll be able to sing on key in my resurrected body. And maybe I'll be able to dance instead of having two left feet. Part of this is, is understanding, uh, getting a biblical picture of who we are. There are times where the church or people in the church have, have taken the, the sense of who we are as people and each one of us is divided into three distinct pieces. Right? So we've got the physical part, which is our, our, our bodies, our, our, our flesh and bones and our muscles. And then you've got what some would call the soul, which would be your intellect, your mind, your emotions, your will. And then you've got the spiritual part of who you are, and that's the part that, that relates to God because God is spirit. But the problem with that understanding, besides not being biblical, the problem with that understanding is it tends to elevate the spiritual as the good thing and and your body, the physical, and your soul, your mind, and and your will, and your emotions are at best second-class citizens. 
so that you worship God with your spirit, but your body, your intellect, it might get in the way. Instead of seeing that these are actually vital parts of our worship, vital parts of our relationship with God. If we take that understanding and sort of to its extremes, in the holiness movement, in the extreme, what that means is, is that you, you live with the sense that the physical is what is bad, and what you need to do is try to do everything you can to repress your physical desires and just seek spiritual things. In the extreme in the Pentecostal movement, it becomes anti-intellectual because what you think could actually get in the way of your experience of God. Or in the, the mainstream church, the church is shaped by the Enlightenment. Uh, what can happen in that is, is that, that we, we think that we worship with our minds, really, but, but our bodies don't... Good Lord, you don't get involved with your... You don't raise your hands. I mean, you, that's not right. Uh, and, and your emotions... No, you don't want to show emotions in worship. So we, if we separate these, then we end up with these, uh, we end up with these problems that arise from that separation. I would even say that what you find often in American evangelicalism it rises out of this, uh, because the general sort of thoughts that you find in many churches today is, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing we can do about it. I mean, maybe we shouldn't anyway, because that's all the physical stuff that's going to be gone. And so there's a place of pulling back from engaging as we were meant to engage in this world. The picture that Scripture gives us is that we are a unified whole. We don't have these three separate parts of ourselves that are disconnected. That we are a unified whole. And there's a material part and there's an immaterial part, but it doesn't hold the immaterial part as better than the immaterial part. So it's a unified whole, and, and the physical is actually celebrated. That's part of what you see in the resurrection. It is a profoundly physical piece uh, of who we are that is celebrated. And this gives us some understanding for what happens in verses 44 on, which we're going to be spending most of our time. Um, and in this section, uh, you have Luke's version of the Great Commission. You find it in verse 47. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Uh, that is the Great Commission, this, the gospel going out to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. But that's in the context of verse 44. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That must is an emphatic. Everything must be fulfilled. It had to happen. And what you find then is that Jesus opens their minds to begin to understand the Scriptures. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open our minds, we can't really get it. It takes God the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. And then He begins to unfold to them what it had taken an eternity to accomplish. As He's laying this out, this is what must be fulfilled. What we understand here is that, that the cross was not God's plan B. It is not that He's like, oh my gosh, Jesus died. What I do? I guess I raise him from the dead. Or it's not that you come to Genesis 3, people rebel, oh my gosh, how am I going to fix this? 
This is not God's plan B. This has been his plan from the beginning. So you find it, for example, in places like Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9, where it speaks about Jesus as the one who has been crucified from the creation of the world or the foundation of the world. Now, obviously, it had to take place in time, that he became crucified in time. But this was God's plan from the beginning. Think about that. Before God created anything, He knew we were going to rebel. Before He created anything, He knew how catastrophic our rebellion was going to be. In fact, it would bring all of creation down with it. Our rebellion drags all of creation also into a fallen state. He knew what we were going to do. And He knew the cost to set it right. That He would have to suffer and die. And He created Knowing that, I don't think I would do that, quite honestly, right? This is, this is showing God's immense love. He created us knowing what it would cost Him for us to be set right, for all things to be set right. This has been God's plan, and Jesus is unfolding that. And, and what He is doing in this moment in Luke is He is inviting the disciples, also inviting us, to actually get a larger picture, to to see that there's a narrative, there's a larger story that is going on. He's inviting them to to see that story. And what we find in verse 47 is that he's also saying, you've got a part in this story. So he says, uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. How does that happen? Just sort of disembodied voices floating around saying repent, right? How does it happen? It happens through us, right? We are those who have received the gospel from others. And that gospel is meant to transform us, and it's also meant to go out through us for others. That, that our lives, our stories, actually have a place in this larger story, this grand narrative that God has written. In other words, your story is actually important. Now we tend to go, apart from the Lord's intervention, we tend to go to one of two polarities and we think about our lives, we think about our stories. That one side, we think that you know, our stories are really, they're just all about me. I'm the central figure in this story and, and God is absent or maybe he's given equal billing, but, but my tragedies and my triumphs are actually all about me. And then we can go to the other side and we say that, that our stories are actually all about God. And who I am really doesn't matter. How He's made me, how He's gifted me really doesn't matter. And, and we can, this sounds pious, right? So it sounds pious to say when, when you do something, the Lord says, man, that was good. What's the pious response? It wasn't me, it was God. That's a form of pride. That's not walking in the truth of what God has said. I was telling a story. I was at a worship uh, time, and the, and the worship was powerful. So I went up to the, the guy who was leading worship on the piano, and I said, that was just really anointed worship. And he said, it wasn't me, it was God. Before I could stop my mouth, I, I said, well, it sure looked like you at the piano. Yes, it was God, yes, working through him, but he was working through him. That God doesn't work in spite of who we are, he works through who we are. 
that, that we actually have a part in this story. That false humility is actually a form of pride. So you see that, that we shouldn't bounce back and forth between these two polarities. Here's the understanding. We are not the main character of the story. God is. He is the hero. He is the main character of this story. But we have important roles. We are not extras. We are not afterthoughts. We are not those who just sit there and observe and hear and have no part or no roles. In other words, your story matters. It is a glorious story, and it is a unique story. Unique in, in that we, we know, yes, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that is absolutely true. But we are uniquely fallen. We are uniquely broken. Uh, the ways that I'm broken is different from the ways that you are broken. And what that means is that our restoration to life is also unique. We are uniquely restored, which means how the glory of God shines through you is different from how it shines through the person sitting next to you. That there is something unique and glorious about your story. And that is something that we've got to know and accept. Because if we don't, we spend our time and energy wishing our stories were different. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, If the words, if only, sort of go through your head at times, If only I were older, if only I were younger, if only I were in better shape, if only more people liked me, if only I were a better speaker, if only I were more handsome, if only I had more money. Do do you get the picture? That, That sense of if only, if only these things could happen, then my story would be right. It means that, that we are actually missing the, the, the glory of being part of his story that he has written and which we have a part of. That place of living in the if only, uh, wishing that our lives were different, means that we are going to be spending our time and our energy trying to rewrite our own story because we don't like it are trying to control the writing of our story as we move forward, which means we miss God's glory revealed through our lives, through our heartaches and our hopes, through our triumphs and our tragedies. There is in, in, you could say in the West, in America for sure, but, but even I find pretty strong in the church, there is an idolatry of the ideal life. That's the extension of if only. We have a picture in our head of what the ideal life is. With the ideal me who goes to the gym every day, uh, the ideal spouse, the ideal family, um, and, and I've got the ideal job, I've got the ideal bank account so I can take the ideal vacations. Uh, we have this, this picture of this ideal life. And we live as if it's actually up to us to actually achieve that life. I've got this ideal, and now I've got to work in order to make it happen. And when we are living in that sense, then, then we live with this understanding that, that actually life is up to me. It's up to me to create it. It's up to me to manipulate people and arrange circumstances in my life so that I can experience life. So what if that's the wrong story? What if you have the wrong opening line of your story? You know, there are books where the opening line sets the stage. 
It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. There are things that can, that can be an opening line that, that really defines how the story moves forward. And the reality is that, that we, if we think about it, you have many opening lines in your life. Opening lines that others have written. Um, opening lines that you have written. Uh, the things that come from how we, how we understand our circumstances, how we interpret our circumstances around us. Let me give you a couple examples. If you grew up in an abusive home, then the opening line for your story could be, you know what, I'm unwanted, and it's probably my fault anyway, and I've got to take care of myself because nobody else will do it. Or, if you grow up in a family where there are high expectations and a sense of you've, you've got to do well and when you do well, you're affirmed and when you don't do as well, well, you're maybe not as affirmed. What you can have as your opening line is, I am not loved for who I am. I am loved for what I do. And so I've got to do well and do more in order to have value and worth in this life. So there are all kinds of of opening lines that we can have. And we tend to gravitate towards people who either reinforce those lines or we think can rewrite them for us. And whether we are living in rebellion against those opening lines, trying to prove they're not true, or whether we are living as a victim of them, just saying, this is what's me, this is what's so, we are letting that opening line own us and define us. And it is the wrong opening line. We miss the opening line of our story if we think that it actually begins with our birth. We tend to think my opening line begins with my birth, it begins with my family of origin, it begins with the the circumstances that I have been born into. Now that is not unimportant. There certainly are, are huge things that are true in that. But that is not our opening line. And then we we come to church and we think, okay, now I get it. I know what my opening line is of my story. Genesis 3, we rebelled against God. So I I am born in rebellion against God. I am born with a sin nature. That's my opening line. And while that is all true, we we sin because we are born sinners, separated from God. Uh, If we don't face into our sins, then we have no ability to know the good news of the gospel. That is not our opening line. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He's saying before anything was created, He chose you in love and with this great sense of delight. Part of that is, is you have to understand that, that, and it's not saying that you existed before, we are born, that starts our existence, but God knew us because He knows all things through all time. He knew us and chose us before He made anything. He made this creation with you already in mind. That begins to shape our understanding of what our opening line to our story is. That begins to shape how we understand the narratives of our life. Uh, So another example. Um, You see Jesus is baptized. 
And, and you know, John says, why am I baptizing you? You should baptize me. And, and Jesus says, no, it's to fulfill all righteousness because Jesus in his baptism is identifying with us so he could stand in our place. And we, in our baptism, we are identified with Jesus. We are united with him, as, as Paul writes about in Romans 6. So if we are in Christ, if we are united to him, then the words of the Father to Jesus at his baptism actually are the shape of his words to us. What does he say in Matthew 3.17? This is the one I love. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's a very sort of British aristocratic sounding thing in whom I'm well pleased. But, but it, it, literally, it's this is the one I delight in. I have such great delight. This is the one I love. This is the one that I delight in. If you are in Christ, if you have been rescued, then those words from the Father to Jesus are his, also his words to you. If the narrative of your life has to have some sense uh, reflecting this understanding that God loves me, and that he takes delight in me. If we, if we are living in the right story, then that's going to mark the narrative of our life. And that's not dependent on the circumstances. And that's not saying God does these great things to me, therefore I know he loves me. It's that through anything, through the things that are difficult, through the trials and through the, the rejoicing, I know the Father's love. And I know that he delights in me. If that doesn't shape your understanding of your story, the narrative of your life, then there are really only two options. One is, you haven't been rescued by Jesus, you're not united with him, and therefore this is not your story yet. Or, you have, but you are living out of the wrong story. And when we live out of the wrong story, we strive for wrong things. We strive for the things that we think can make our story right. And we settle for cheap imitations of life, and we bow down to the golden calves that we think can create life for us and protect and secure life for us. We end up living our lives running in circles like, like hamsters on those little wheels. right? You're just going and going and going, but you're not actually getting anywhere. And we miss the glory that the Lord has to come through us in this life. And when we, are, when we are running on that hamster wheel, we actually are fairly indifferent to others around us. Because all of our energy is trying to write my story and, and get this ideal life that I think I need to have. Which means that we miss how our story is part of his larger story. We miss how he invites us into this. That the repentance for the forgiveness of sins is preached through us. That's a part of who we are in this story. And that proclamation, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins being preached, that is a gospel proclamation. Jesus does not say repentance after you try really, really hard to be good and go to church every Sunday and, and do these right things. This is God's gift. It's a proclamation of what God has done through us, through Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection. This is the gospel that we receive from others because they knew their place in that story. And in that, this gospel is meant to go out through us to others. 
That we are those who manifest the kingdom of God. We are those who defeat the enemy. We are those who bring light where there is darkness. We are those who, who bring life in a world of death. Verse 48, Jesus says, You are witnesses of these things. A witness doesn't just know about something. A witness has an experience of something. And that experience shapes your understanding of who you are, and it shapes how you live. Meaning, when he's saying that you are witnesses, he's saying you, have, you know this because you've experienced it. And that means that your life, your words and your actions are a proclamation and a demonstration of this gospel. That place that we begin to understand that the Christian life is not sort of a spiritual self-help program where we are just working to try to get better and better all the time and I'm a little bit better than I was last week and then, well, I fell, but I'm trying to get better again. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a story of the miraculous, transforming work of God. He changes who we are. He takes us when we are those who deserve nothing but the wrath of God, when we are bound in sin and death and shame. He takes us when we are those who feel guilty. Why? Because we are guilty. We feel shame. Why? Because it is shameful how far we have fallen from what God intended in the beginning. He takes us in that place and changes us that we become children of God, that we become again His glory and His presence in creation, that we become those that He loves, that we become sons and daughters of the King of Kings, the one that He delights in. This is what we are witnesses to. This is, if Jesus has rescued you, then this is actually the narrative of your life. This is the story of our life. And this is the gospel in us. And it's meant to be the gospel through us as well. Verse 49. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. We cannot live in the right story. Let alone engage in the kingdom work that God calls us into in our own strength. It takes the power of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, for that to be true. Why? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil oppose. Uh, We can't do it in our own strength. It's the strength of God, the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul writes in Romans 8.16 that the Spirit, God's Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are His children. It takes the Spirit of God continually testifying to us that you belong to God. Because there are all kinds of voices whispering, no, you don't. It's the Spirit of God who says, no, you are a child of God. And without that, we live as those who are orphans. Just like in John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus is speaking about the Spirit. and He says, he is with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's speaking about the Spirit of God in that. And in that time and place, orphans were were incredibly vulnerable, they were weak, and they were alone. I am not going to leave you as orphans, meaning you are not abandoned. You are not alone. This is not up to you. You have not been forgotten. That is not your story. Your story is that I will come. You are not orphans. And the, the Spirit of God, says uh, in Romans 8.11, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is present, is living in those 
who belong to him. And that is something that cannot be taken away. Doesn't matter how much the enemy taunts us. Doesn't matter how much the world hates us. It doesn't matter how much opposition there is. The Holy Spirit is in the believer. We will not be orphans. And that truth is what enables us to be witnesses in this world. See, what you actually see in the book of Acts, which, which Luke wrote, I mean, we end here in the book of Acts is, is the second chapter of this. And what you see in the book of Acts is the kingdom of God coming in power and authority through the disciples, being empowered by God the Holy Spirit to stand and do who God had made them to be. And in that, to do what he had called them to do no matter what the opposition was. They knew their story. They knew their place in this story. See, we can miss being his witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit because we have the wrong opening line. We are living out of the wrong story. We, we tend to live as those who are orphans and alone, and it's up to us, and we've got to make it right. So are you living in the right story? The story that Jesus purchased you by his blood on the cross, his rescue, moving you from sin and shame and death into glory and life and righteousness, being those that he delights in. As you look at the narrative of your life, do you hear the echoes of this is the one I love? I have such great delight in you. So the more fully we know that this is our story, the more fully we can actually help others see this story that God has written and see their place in it. The more fully we know that this is our story, the more fully we can be a kingdom presence in this world. So we're coming now to the time of confirmation and and, and part of what you're seeing in confirmation is we are praying for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, that those who are praying for, that they would live in the right story, that they would know who they are in Jesus, know what he has done for them, and in that then, to have a freedom and empowering to be his witnesses, to know that we are his kingdom in this world. But please don't make the mistake in the time of confirmation, saying we're just praying that for them. We're praying that for us. That we need the Holy Spirit to empower us, to open our eyes, to let the Word of God shape us, that we would know who we are in Him, that we would know that, that our story matters, but it's part of this larger story. And this is a story that is marked by the grace and love of God. It's a story marked by the call to go and be His witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the story you have written. Before you created anything, you knew our rebellion was coming. And you knew the cost it would take to set things right. Thank you for the immense grace and love of creating, knowing those things. Father, thank you that you are the one who rescues us. You're the one who saves us. That your love and your grace should mark the narratives of our lives. So Spirit of God, where we have been living under the wrong opening lines in the wrong story, 
Would you, by your grace and your word, set our hearts and our minds right? Through Jesus' mighty name, amen.